Hello and welcome to Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and we've got a very special episode for you today. I'm here with John Brewster from The Angels. Good morning, John. Good morning, Sean. Uh, just great to sit down with you for this special podcast. I saw the band last night play with a symphony orchestra and choir, and I've got to say, it was something else. <laughs> well, it's one of the great experiences of my life, and Rick would say the, exactly the same, having been brought up in a classical musical family with a grandfather who we never met because he died just before I was born, but uh, he composed over 600 works. He was a conductor, a, a concert pianist, and so he's the big deal in the family, and, you know, some of that... Some of that talent has sort of spun off through the generations, and including my sons, Rick's son, Jody. It's wonderful, the family, this whole family connection. But to play, we, when we walk on stage, that opening overture is written by my grandfather. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, what a connection. But it was um, I mean, great to hear the hits like that. But the real reason we're here today is to talk about um, the film, Kicking Down the yeah, Door, The yeah. Angels. I saw the film a few weeks ago when we got together for the Brisbane National Film Festival. Yeah. Mm. And, of course, you opened the Adelaide Film Festival. Great we response. Did. It's opened on 90 screens around the country. Can you tell me how the film came into being? Because I understand you were quite a pivotal part of that. Well, I became very good friends with Peter Hanlon, who has a, a banking. Uh, he was right up the top of Westpac. Uh, he retired, moved down to Victor Harbour. I met him through my wife, Sue, who plays golf with him. Uh, Alison Handlin, so uh, Peter's wife, and um, uh, so the, there's four husbands, four four girls who play golf together. Four husbands. He's one of them. He became a great friend. And when COVID came along, and actually just before COVID, um, we started doing these walks. And Peter said, "You know, I've got a film company called Living Not Beige Films." And I said, "Well, that's interesting. You better make a documentary on the Angels then." And I'd already spoken to Michael Bulgan. Michael's the head of Beyond International, mm. or Beyond Entertainment, I think they're called now. And uh, Michael used to be the Angels' accountant way back in the early 80s. Oh, I see. That's the connection. Okay. That's the connection. And, and Michael's a great friend of of all, <coughs> all of the people in the Angels, actually, um, <coughs> Rick and me in particular. And uh, I sometimes go over to Sydney and I'll stay a night or two with, the, with Michael and Jackie Bulgan. I said to Peter, now, you know, you've got to make a movie on the Angels and I, I should introduce you to Michael because you're going to need that connection. Right. And so he came over and uh, we had uh, a nice afternoon drinking a bit of Pinot Noir. I went to dinner that night and had more Pinot Noir. At the end of the evening, they shook hands and did a deal. Um, <clears throat> no no contract, just uh, as it should be. Um, so long story short, uh, on those walks... Peter would ask me questions. So tell me, you know, what happened, uh, you know, for example, what happened between you and your brother back in mm. 1985, the end of 85? And I'd say, well, we were touring America. It was a stupid tour. We were losing money hand over fist. And, you know, it it affected my relationship with Rick, among other things, you know. Um, and I was, I was losing the vibe. There were problems. You know, Doc had his problems and... Uh, uh, you know, it just, I, I could tell that the music we were making at mm. the time wasn't going to crack America. We, we were quite a big band in America, a lot more than people realise. However, to really do the business yeah. in, in the States, it's all got to fall together. 
Well, we often hear about bands cracking uh, certain territories in America, like, yeah, them, like, like West Coast, East Coast, yeah. but that heartland is very hard to crack, isn't it? Well, it is. And, I mean, uh, the hardest probably was the Midwest for us. Um, we, we were a major band in New York City. We, we did mm. the Ritz there, sold it out. Uh, you know, uh, the, the West Coast of the States, uh, mm. we, we did our own too. We had Missing Persons supporting us. Missing Persons were a fantastic band. Terry Bozio is the drummer and his wife, Dale, was the singer. Um, pretty distracting. She was she was a, <laughs> a penthouse centrefold. So we'd all share the dressing room and it was hard to... to, to uh, it, it, you know, it had to look somewhere else. <laughs> Uh, but that was a great tour, and um, yeah, we did really well. But then you know we'd go into the Midwest and and uh, then just lose money hand, hand over fist, and it just got too hard. And I realised that the Two Minute Warning album, whilst it's got a lot of merit, yeah. it's just not the sort of album that was going to make it for us. Now the film focuses on one particular period, the beginning of the band till, as you said, nine eighty five, eighty six, or is it later than that? Yeah, well, I left the band in eighty six. So it basically deals. 76 to 86. 76, the band was already two years old, but if that's when Buzz Bitstrup came in. Yeah. And then very soon after, uh, Chris Bailey, when I think Buzz was with the band for about a week and he came up to me and he said, you got to get me a bass player. Yes, <laughs> yes, because Doc had been playing bass at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, you know, we all love Doc and Doc was an amazing front man. Yeah. Um, uh, he became an amazing front man. He wasn't initially that, that um, he was trying to find his feet, you know. Uh, but as a musician, as a bass player, he, he well, as Buzz says in the movie, he couldn't keep up with him. So, so Buzz said, "What about Chris Bailey?" And and I knew Chris. I first met Chris on a cadet camp of all things. We were singing Beatles songs together. Wow, I, that's why I called him Beatle Bailey. Right. And um, so Chris came in, and all of a sudden we had a rhythm section. I, I, there's sort of a moment, isn't there, in the film where you can feel. The classic lineup of the band comes together because once you had Buzz, yeah, Chris Bailey, Doc out front, yeah. who, as you said, was one of the great front men, and then of course the Brewster brothers. Yeah, you know, it, we had the whole thing. You know, it was it certainly was a band that that, that uh, well, you know what happened here in in Australia that could have happened everywhere. I mean, mm. you know, we it did in some ways. You know, France was big for us, and unfortunately, we never went back there again until two thousand fifteen. Yeah, uh, so there was this huge audience, and they were, I reckon none of them were born <laughs> the last time we played Paris. Now, the the big champions of you guys in the early days were ACDC. Yeah, w was ACDC? They saw you play. Did they recommend you to Vander and Young to sign you to Alberts? Yeah, they did. I mean, we did three gigs with them um, in early days in nineteen seventy five, and and um, that was Port Pirie, Wyala, and Port Augusta uh, in South Australia, and. Um, you know, we, we were at this Port Pirie Hotel and the boys walked in and within half an hour we were all the best of mates and, mm. uh, you know, we were the opening act. They just blew us away. I mean, I couldn't believe how great they were. And um, uh, it was the second gig. We were in um, Wyala and Angus and Malcolm and, and Bond came mm. up to Rick and Doc and me and they said, look, we think you'd be great on the Alberts label and we want to go back to Sydney and tell Van and Young about you and I went really? <laughs> yeah. I mean we'd sort of hawked some tapes around the place and no one was really that interested um, 
anyway, true to their word, and they were very much true to their word, those guys. Um, very loyal. Um, we went over to Sydney, we played checkers, and down the stairs came Angus, Malcolm, Bond, Harry Vander, George Young. I saw them come down and went, wow, wow, you know, these people are right at the top of the tree. And, and so we had a bit of a chat, and George Young said, come in the studio tomorrow and uh, play a few of your songs to us here in the studio. So we go along the next day. We take all the amps and the drums and everything up the lift. We take them and set them up in the studio. And George said, oh, no, you don't need to, need to do that. Here's an acoustic guitar. I just want you to sing some of your songs. Oh, wow. So we did that. And uh, George and Harry signed us within about three weeks. That's amazing. You, you hear stories that George Young would say to, to Malcolm and Angus that, their best songs had to work on an acoustic guitar or piano, right? That's exactly right. And and so, you know, we learned so much from from all of those guys, really. I mean, from Angus Malcolm, from, uh, and particularly, you know, I mean, I don't like to separate Vander and Young, cause, but George was, for me, the most inspirational person I've ever worked with. Yeah. And up to the point where where it was George, George always did the talking. Harry would chip in, you know. I mean, Harry's great, you know, wonderful guitarist, etc. But George had this charismatic kind of thing where you just hung off his every word. And he and Harry dragged Rick and my me out into the corridor. It's in the movie, you know. And they said, "Listen, we um, we don't we want to stop producing you." And at that stage, we'd had flop after flop after flop. And so my heart sank and I thought, well, they've, I think they've lost interest. Mm. Uh, but now when I look back on it, I actually think that they saw something developing in what Rick and I were doing at the time. Um, uh, I'm talking about, the, you know, what we call the nick-nicks, you know, mm. I ain't the one, take a long line, all that sort of stuff. They saw something developing and I think George felt, he said, what he said to us at the time is that, They've got acts that have the Vander Young sound and then we should develop our own. I think they could see that we were heading somewhere. Yeah. Um, Marco says they're about to drop us. I don't think that's actually true. I'm not saying he's, you know, t telling a, mm. a lie or anything, but I, I don't think that's actually true. I think George actually saw something. And George was like that, you know, very, very canny Scotsman, you know. Uh, and so he sort of threw us in the deep end with, uh, along with Mark and uh, we came up with Face to Face. It's interesting. I remember seeing Graham Goldman interviewed from 10CC mm. and somebody asked him about the best album they ever made and why was it that album? And he said because Paul McCartney was working in the studio next door. <laughs> so they, had, they really wanted to lift their game and be competitive. You must have felt that way when you're taking your songs and you're playing them for Harry Vander and George Young. You weren't going to take in the B-sides, were you? Well, no. The thing is that um, you didn't get a, 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 an average song past George and Harry. You mm. know, we would we would record demos, and and often, you know, we, we. I mean, the studio was a wonderful place to be because it was like being part of a family. Often, uh, the boys in ACDC were there too, and we'd, you know, I mean, the, God, the, the the control room was just full of smoke. Sometimes illicit smoke, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, but never with Angus, of course. Um, well, like here, no, he smoked a million cigarettes. But um, uh, the thing is, um, we would record demos and we'd put them on a cassette and George and Harry would sit down and George would put, you know, each song on and 
sometimes he'd only listen to about 10 seconds and then he'd he'd put a cross beside yeah. the title occasionally he might put a cross and then he said that's worth another look yeah you know uh, and then he, he, you'd get a tick and buzz says that he didn't get anywhere with the songwriting well that's kind of true but we did we actually did demo a song of, of buzzers and the, the the harsh reality is that george listened to 10 seconds of that and put a cross beside the title quite rightly and it wasn't a very good song um and we wrote shithouse songs too. Yeah. But we also wrote some good ones. And part of the thing about back in the 70s, the late 70s, is that there was a, such a live scene that when you wrote a song and you put it on stage, sometimes you put it on stage that night. Yeah. And if you got a, a lackluster response, you go and write another song. So we got we ah. just got better and better at writing songs. So, so you were road testing material in front of an audience before you before you were recording it? Yeah, around that face-to-face period we did, yeah. And, and you know, it was uh, tough times. We were, we were even talking about maybe splitting up because it was yeah. you know, we were so broke. Well, that, that's touched on really well in the film, the financial struggle, the hardship of travelling to Sydney mm. and finding a place to live. Now, Madeline Parry, the director... Uh, I was interested when I first heard about the film a couple of years ago that she wasn't an Angels fan and didn't really know the Angels' music, but she's done a remarkable job with the film in terms of getting to the personalities and unravelling those. I mean, yeah. it, it's, uh, you know, the brother conflict. It's Shakespearean stuff, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, that's what attracted her to that. Although it turned out that she didn't know who the band was, but she knew the songs. Ah. She did actually know the songs. She went, oh, hang on, I know that song. Yeah. Uh, and... So, you know, all the songs that were on radio, she was actually, f- she had some familiarity with them. But the thing that that uh, sort of, if you like, sort of dragged her into, you know, our world and mm. and, and uh, history was, uh, was the emotional side of it. Because I'd tell Peter Handon on those walks we did, mm. you know, okay, well, what happened in the 80s, you know, Rick... And Rick and I were struggling. Uh, you know, a wonderful friendship and and musical partnership that was, you know, represented so much on face to face, no X, etc., etc. Was kind of breaking down, and uh, things things weren't that great between us. And and Madeline had some sort of emotional response to that, and she said, "Oh, okay." She said, "I'm I'm now I'm interested." And w- and when Peter told me, uh, Peter had made the decision himself. But when he told me that she'd had an emotional reaction to our story, and we had another f- three guys that had put their hand up to p- to direct, and one of them was actually uh, Scott Hicks, who who's obviously very famous. And yeah. I actually did filmmaking and drama with Scott. Right. Flinders University. So I knew I had a personal relationship. Great filmmaker. And I went round and I had a chat to him at his house at Port Elliot. I live at Victor Harbour, which is yeah. next next door sort of thing. And uh, yeah, we decided we wouldn't go ahead together, you know, and make a movie. And I'm really glad about that. No offence to Scott, because yeah. I think I think Maddie coming in as a young woman with a young crew, yeah, that all the people who made this movie were young, apart from Peter Hanlon, of course. Who, yes, yeah, he calls me old. He's not that far short of me. <laughs> Now, Peter was saying the other day that uh, she kind of shot the intimate scenes, like they shoot sex scenes in movies, close set, 
and they basically locked you off from the camera, I think. Because yeah. it does get quite emotional. It must be hard for you. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's cathartic seeing that stuff on the screen. Uh, it's weird seeing how emotional I, I became in that movie. I, I, I accept that I'm a bit of a sook, really. I mean, <laughs> but the thing is that by her screening off the sound recordist and uh, the cameraman, etc., and he'd, he'd set his camera up, but then he'd be out of sight. So it's like I'm talking to you now. Mm. It was just one-on-one. And she was very good at, at at asking a question, and you know she she knew what she was doing. She was leading somewhere, you know. And then she asked me about my father, and I, and so because she's asking about a piece of history, suddenly you're transported back into that time. Yeah. And and so I would get quite emotional because I was back there. Yes. You know, I can look at it. Now I'm not get emotional about yes. it. I can just look at it and go, well, this happened, that happened, etc. But be- because you were having that one-on-one relationship with her, yes, she was very, very good. And I think she's a fantastic director. Well, one of my concerns before I saw the film was um, how would Doc Neeson be represented in that period? Because he's such obviously a huge, huge part of the band in huge. that period. Yeah. Um, but they've done it very well, haven't they? With family members talking, yeah. his former wife talking, and of yeah. course archive um, yeah. things from the National Archive. Well, as you probably know, Rick and I had no direct involvement in how the movie uh, was going to be made and how, what the balance might be or ah. anything. Um, we we intentionally wanted to stay out of that because we don't want people saying, oh, well, it's just a, a Brewster Brothers yeah. movie, you know. Yeah. Because we're basically we're the last man standing, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, so um, the whole thing um, basically was her her idea along with Peter, but particularly her. Um, and we, I mean, I saw it when it was released at the Adelaide Film Festival as the opening night. I mean, it was a really big deal. I mean, it was the, the premiere was there and yeah. the red carpet and all that stuff. And I'm going, well, I haven't seen it yet. So it's funny, isn't it? Because you know that people often say there's there's my version of the truth, there's your version of the truth, and then there's the truth. That's uh, it. Is is there things in the film you think, oh, that's not right? But you can't change it, of course, because it's out there. Well, or, or were there some things that illuminated you that you didn't know about? I I, I had to I had to suppress me yelling out bullshit. Yeah. With uh, some of the stuff that Buzz Bitzer was saying, it's just. Uh, and you know it is weird how people remember it, and I and I think that probably that is their memory. You know, like yeah. Mark Opitz says, "Oh yeah, with Doc, uh, the band wasn't there. It was just me and Doc." We did, was, and I and that's I mean that's just ridiculous. I was there for every one of his vocal sessions. I mean, Rick and I produced that stuff. Yeah. So we weren't going to just hand it over to, to. I don't care about you know. Mark was a great engineer, but yeah. he was not really that sort of producer at that stage. He, yeah. he developed as a producer through yeah. working for us. And I'm not saying that I'll take the credit for him becoming a good producer, but I mean that whole thing you couldn't you couldn't help but be be become good at what you were doing by being around George Harry, uh, Ted Albert, mm. uh, John Paul Young, the whole, you know ACDC. Of course, we did lots of gigs with them, and that's one of the things we wanted to make sure we didn't copy ACDC. And I wrote Marseille, for example, and George wasn't that sure about that. And I actually reckon that he thought that was a little bit ACDC-ish. <laughs> and, and at that stage, there, were, there was a little bit of... They hadn't made it overseas at that stage. They recorded their, their and released their, what I think is ACDC's best ever album, which is Power Age. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing record. album. Great record. You know, to me, it's better than Back in Black and yeah. any of them. You know, I'd agree. And I'm a huge ACDC fan. When they released Power Age, the American record company weren't interested, uh, and they released it in Australia. Well, we released Face to Face at the same time. So for that brief moment in history, mm-hmm. the Angels were bigger than ACDC because they did about 25,000 copies of the album. We did about 450,000. Wow, that's huge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it just went crazy. But, of course, uh, that was just a little hiccup in their career. But there was a time when I know Malcolm was kind of a little bit concerned that we might become bigger than them. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, you know, you can't change history, but the, the craziest thing we ever did was leave that company. Yeah, and that's sort of outlined in, in the film too, isn't it? The decision to leave Albert's not going on a world tour with ACDC. Yeah, I mean, it was just madness, you know. But, you know, you can look back on it and you go, well, you, it's easy to see where you made the mistakes and yeah. where your manager made the mistakes and it's easy to get personal about that and say, oh, you know, well, you know, and think less of him because he did it. And he would have done it for what he believed were the right reasons. Um, but in retrospect, it was crazy. You know, we were part of the Alberts family. Ted Albert supported ACDC. They went overseas and lived there. And we did. We tried to do it out of Australia. Yeah. And uh, that's a very difficult thing to do because you take your own Australian road crew, etc. The costs were enormous. Yes. And for a while it was working. I mean, we started off, we were with Epic Records and, uh, you know, which is CBS at the time. And uh, and um, we were with the William Morris Agency, which is considered the best agency in the world. And, I mean, they were right into the band. And for reasons I don't even understand, uh, that changed John... Uh, manager uh, put us with a different agency. We were nowhere near as good. I, I don't know what what was the reason, but it doesn't matter, you know. And, and look, here, we, here we are. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And uh, p- people forget, don't they, now in 2022, that records used to cost so much money to make. I mean, now somebody can literally record in their bedroom and have an international hit if the stars align and yeah. they get the right promotion help. But y- you guys are talking budgets of hundreds of thousands of dollars back in 1980-something to make a record. Yeah, well, you know, 1984 we released, the, we recorded the Two Minute Warning album. And and I remember that very clearly because I, I spoke to Martin Benj at EMI Studios and and he gave me a quote. Uh, it was pretty open-ended time-wise. He said, uh, you can make your album here for $60,000, which was actually a lot of money in 1984. Yeah. Um, and then we'd signed with MCI um, and they were pretty excited about the band, and our manager said, well, I think you should record in L.A. because you'll be on the doorstep of the record company. Um, well, that meant no- absolutely nothing. We went over to, you know, it was fun to do. We all had apartments in yeah. in the valley, you know. Um, we recorded the record plant. We recorded at the A&M Studios, the Charlie Chaplin Studios. I mean, it was all fantastic, you know. You know, we, we lived in LA for about three months. That album cost us four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in eighty four is probably about four million now. Oh yeah, yeah. So, and you know, that that started a process of debt because you know the the record company adv- advanced didn't really come close to paying all that. So we were really on on overdraft and stuff like that. We then toured the States in 85 and just got into more debt. Uh, so that weighed very heavily on me because I've 
I've always been the financial guy in the band, you know, but probably because, you know, I did do chartered accountancy yeah, for a while. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and that weighed really heavily on me. So that was a huge contributing p- uh, factor in the breakup of our relationship. In, in the film too, we can see that amazing songwriting streak where you guys are just writing hits, great album tracks. Mm. Um, w- when it's like that and you're trying to crack America, do you start competing against yourself in a way, trying to always match the record you've done before or, or exceed that record? That's a really good question. Um, not sure how to answer that question. I suppose you do. Um, but I think actually one of the mistakes that we kind of started making, and a mistake that ACDC never made. ACDC, I mean, somebody was interviewing Malcolm Young one time and they said, how does it feel to have made the same album 15 times over? And Malcolm, I, I, I reckon if he was asked a question like that when he was younger, he probably would have got punched the guy in the nose. Because Malcolm could do that, yeah, uh, all for four foot eleven of him, and he, he could be quite a feisty sort of guy, um, and a lovely guy. And all the youngs, fantastic. But um, he he answered the question by saying, "No, I won't have that. That's wrong. That's wrong. We've made the same album sixteen times over." <laughs> and we, you know, you, when you say, "Did we compete with ourselves?" I think actually what we were doing was we were trying not to repeat ourselves which i think in a way you look back on well that's probably a bit silly you know by the time we got to the that two minute warning album the guy that was producing us had rick and i playing sort of guitar parts that we would never play he'd sing things and we'd just play what he sang and i look look i listened back to that album i go yeah but the demos were great yeah right because we just played like we do like you saw last night with it and and so things were you know which was almost like trying to reinvent the band. And that was silly because it, it didn't need to do that. It was interesting seeing the band last night because you can see the development from... You talk about Shadow Box, which you wrote, being a very key song in your development. Yeah. But then you hear something like uh, Face the Day. Yeah. And it's it's progressing in a whole other way, isn't it, down the line? Yeah, well, that's also my song. Um, um, but, of course, Rick's made so much more of that song than, you know, than what he does you know his solo at the end and everything is just fantastic but uh uh yeah but see face to face i'm sorry face the day came from the dark room album and i always thought that it was a big mistake in the states because they tried to catch up to where the band was right so the epic wanted by the time we released dark room in australia they wanted to release it also in america so but so what they did was they put together face to face and no exit and chose what they thought were the best songs, and I went over to the states mm. and mixed it, remixed it for America, with a more of an American mix. They put reverb on the guitars and all this sort of stuff, and I thought it actually sort of weakened the yeah. thing a bit because the Australian mixes sound fantastic, still do today. Um, so, but anyway, they, so some of the you know, I mean, face to face and no exit have got moments a lot lot of light and shade you know they're tough albums but it's also got the softness as well and they just chose all the tough stuff so by the time we released the darkroom album it was kind of too different yeah gotcha Mm. and also too in the history of rock and roll has a remix ever exceeded the original remixes uh, i mean the classic to me is bob clear mountains remix of free right free one of the great bands of all time 
and you listen to that stuff of theirs, the original mixes, and it just sounds so pure, just so fantastic, but so primitive too. Yeah. And then he got, and he started sampling snare drums and, and shifting things and putting reverb all over it. And you know what? They sound like a pretty ordinary band. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's been many versions of the Angels too. Um, yeah. When you, you moved into when, when Buzz and Chris left the band, yeah. was that a, a uh, a shot in the arm creatively to try and do something different or was it sort of like or was it not that was it the opposite of that yeah well that's another good question I mean the thing is that Buzz left first and to be honest we were pretty happy to see him go because Buzz was becoming very very difficult and he would say that we were difficult too I guess but I'm not quite sure what he's really trying to say because I mean, he wasn't writing songs. He says, oh, you know, he never used our songs. Well, number one, we didn't choose what we recorded. George Young did. So it's like, okay. In other words, he, what he should be saying is George Young didn't use my songs. And then George yeah. would, would have said, what songs? Because yeah. he didn't have any. Oh. If, so if, when, if Buzz is listening, we'll get you on next week, Buzz. Oh, no, Buzz can listen. <laughs> I, I don't care. What, you know, I'll, I'm just telling you the real t- <laughs> Buzz make Anyway, I mean, as you say, you know. You uh, you have your own version of history, but uh, but I, I know what I'm saying. I mean, Buzz didn't have songs, and uh, so he was difficult. and And I understand that difficulty. I say in the movie that we should have tried harder to make him happy. Yeah. The thing is, we were pioneering. We we were out in America. We didn't realize that, that with touring America, and you you were getting paid a per diem out of to record company advances, which was just you know, subsistence kind of money. And the only people that were making anything like good money were the songwriters. Yeah. Now, what bands have done since is they've split off some of their songwriting and shared it with the people who are non-songwriters. But at that stage of our game, and we're signed to Alberts with all that publishing, etc. there's no way in the world George and Harry would have accepted that. So... But if I look back on it, I think, yeah, you know what, it would have been good to split off some of that publishing, share it with the other guys, and and that might have made Buzz happier. I don't know. Well, it's interesting now with modern songwriting. So I've spoken to other great songwriters, and mm. they'll say, when I wrote that song back in 1975, I didn't write the, the, the change in the middle eight, but I didn't give the person a credit for it. Whereas now, you'll see a song, there'll be 12 people credited as songwriters. So... Yeah. The, it's it's interesting. I mean, a, a good example, I guess, is uh, "And I Love Her" by the Beatles. Yeah, that ding 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 was George Harrison's. Yeah, as da, I said, da, da, da. Yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. He, he would have got a credit for that now, but he wouldn't have in nineteen sixty whatever uh, yeah. it was. Well, you know, I mean, certainly in my case, I mean, we didn't really know what any of that stuff really meant. Yeah, we, and and as far as the business side of things were concerned, well, we were just you know hell bent on writing good songs and 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 doing overseas what we did in Australia because I mean you know when the band took off in Australia it was massive and we wanted to be massive everywhere you know yeah and you deserve to be there's that great story isn't there about the kinks trying to kick you off the tour because yeah. uh, you're too good oh the kinks yeah. you, you know Chris Bailey paid paid Ray Davies back we were on a plane together flying from Sydney to Adelaide and Ray Davies was on the plane he was sitting up the front and that was at ANSET days, and and Chris got asked the air hostess if she, I think it's probably a politically incorrect term these days, but anyway, have you got any uh, 
Anne's had letterhead, and she said, sure. I said, can you get me a glass, a dirty glass, with a little bit of melted ice in it and a, a crushed lemon? And she said, she looked at him a bit weirdly, and she says, yeah, okay. And he goes, he gets the letterhead, and he writes, to Ray Davies, from courtesy of Angel City, and had her deliver it to him. <laughs> <laughs> he was, um, I don't know, like... We were going over great, but I don't know what he was worried about. He had all the hits. We didn't have the hits. <laughs> but, I mean, we, we were on that tour, that Kinks tour, when we, when we went back into the places that we'd played with the Kinks, we were a major band. The yeah. band took off like a rocket. But I don't think we blew them off the stage. They had the hits. We didn't. They had a lot of hits. And, of course, you built great relationships with people like Cheap Trick. Is it true that when your gear was stolen, they lent you some gear? Uh, Rick Nielsen did, yeah. Right. Because uh, Rick Nielsen lives in Rockford, uh, Illinois, which is 120 miles outside of Chicago. And he heard about a uh, truck being stolen. We'd sold out the Park West Club, which is a great club in Chicago. And it was a sellout show. We were all very excited. Truck got stolen. We've got no gear. So Rick Nielsen threw, chucked some guitars into what they call the trunk of his car and uh, and turned up at the at the club and said here guys help yourself wow so i bought a les paul from him he came up on stage that night and played can't shake it with us uh so we've become really good friends and we did we toured uh, england and, and france with them in that year in 1980 uh and we just became firm friends so we we still are and um saw them not that long well they were in the movie you've seen the movie yes yeah. yes <laughs> and look i've heard uh fans are saying they've heard there's enough footage being shot for the documentary there could be a sequel to it do you think that's likely or is it likely to end up behind uh, the scenes stuff uh, I would doubt it I don't think it's likely I mean it, there's, there's all the um, the behind the scenes stuff which is pretty fascinating uh, I don't know if there's a movie in it though yeah and I think I think why this movie works as a movie is that emotion yes um, you know it's not just about the music. It's, it's right. No, it's very much. It's, it's a story about people, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a brotherhood thing. Yeah. You know, the thing is that we, it was a brotherhood between Rick, Doc, and me, and that's why we did had Bruce Denise and Brewster as the songwriting team. Yeah. So it, you know, uh, you know, I'd write a song. It still went down as Bruce Denise and Brewster. Yes. Um, and I think that was really representative of the three guys that. Along with Charlie King, Charlie King joined the band, but we, you know we spent a couple of years travelling around with him before Buzz joined, and they were really tough times. But I look back and go, gee, they were great, you know, they were fantastic. <laughs> the old EH station wagon, which we drove around in like four years in that car uh, before the band's kind of took off, and um, there were no freeways, you know, and you'd overnight from Melbourne to Sydney and play for five hours for next to nothing. And uh, but I look back at it and go, gee, they were great days, you know. You obviously love life on the road, and, and I think I said once that uh, having Dave Gleeson in the band is like somebody dropping a new engine in an old Monaro. <laughs> uh, he, yeah. He's such a great front man. He is, yeah. You obviously have no problem maintaining your appetite for playing live. With what? You, you obviously have no problem maintaining the appetite for playing live. No, and uh, for two reasons. One is the band's playing great, yeah. and, and since uh, Nick and... And Sam, my son Sam, uh, 
joined the band and they've been with us 11 years you know <laughs> um the thing is that they they're a wonderful rhythm section they're amazing yeah they are and to me a rock and roll band if it doesn't swing it doesn't ma- mean anything you know mm-hmm. that's a saying if it don't swing it don't mean a thing they swing so th- all those guitar parts that i do and rick does mm. work so much better with that with that lineup yeah. it's not just knock any other lineup it's just one of those things and and then uh, Dave coming in. Dave Dave came in in 2011, and he's just been amazing. So that's one reason that the band plays so well. And the other reason is that is to me, that's that that song. Those songs that we wrote way back then still sound quite fresh today. And I think maybe it's because we didn't choose like, you know, we didn't write. I'm living in the 70s, for example. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. But when you can't, if you sing it in 2022, it's a bit, really? <laughs> I mean, you know, we didn't, we're not that smart that we thought that at the time. We just, yeah. we were so, we were really into lyric. Yeah. Uh, I'm hugely influenced by Bob Dylan. Uh, Rick, I think, wrote some of the best lyrics in the Angels' history. I mean, Mr. Damage, my God, what yeah. a great lyric. Yeah, um, and, and Dave does it so well when you do it live now. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. And, and you obviously made a decision with Dave. Um, you had the doc years, but you if Dave was going to be in the band, you had to record new music. And you've made two albums together, I think. We've done, yeah, we've actually got a third new material. one. A third one recorded and COVID kind of held that up. Ah. But, uh, we're going to focus on finishing that um, next year. And then, of course, we've got the 50-year coming up, so I can't believe it. The band's going to be 50 years old in 2024. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Well, John, I know that you were a participant in the film. You had no say in how the, the finished product turned up, but yeah. uh, congratulations. It's a remarkable film and it's a remarkable story. I'm glad that you and Rick worked everything out. And uh, Yeah, way know, back. Yeah. yeah, you've got that brotherly love and that you've kept on rocking. Yeah, uh, it it is a, a wonderful thing, and of course now we now we've got you know grown up kids, and and they all play. They're all really good musicians, and you know we we did the symphony show in Hobart uh, a week or so ago, and uh, uh, Rick's six foot seven son Jody got up and played sax. Brilliant. Played the uh, played the uh, take along line oh, so, yeah. uh, solo in harmony. Um, yeah, I mean, when you see that sort of stuff happen, it's pretty heartening. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for joining me, John. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's great. Cheers.